Why is it that jails all around the world are filled with people who spend their whole lives going in and out of prison? Can a leopard change its spots? Asks the Old Testament prophet. When the cry does go out to a sinful world, be reconciled to God, what hope is there that anyone will even listen, let alone respond? We've seen already in this series that the Bible teaches that our salvation is all of God, that he has taken the initiative to rescue us from our sin. But how is it that anyone comes to accept for themselves what it is that God has done in Christ? Of all the explanations that the Bible provides in answering that question, the opening ten verses of Ephesians 2 are perhaps the most well-known, the most helpful, the most simple, and at the same time the most amazingly deep and profound verses in the Scripture. The answer in its simplest terms is given in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. You, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and, and sins. And then in verses 2 to 10, the apostle expounds upon that opening verse and explains exactly what that means and how that looks and works in the life of a believer who once was lost in all of their sins. And despite that awful catalogue of sins that Paul lists in those opening chapters to the Romans, and despite the, the pretty bleak picture that he paints there, actually this opening verse of Ephesians chapter 2 lets us see that the whole situation regarding sinners before a holy God is even worse than you thought. Even worse than you thought. When Christians talk about their life before they were saved, very often you'll, you'll hear them talking about things which are based upon emotions and desires and ambitions and um, through all that, all that, a lack of fulfilment that they, they had in their lives, in some ways very similar to what you read in Ecclesiastes. What is the point of anything in this world? And, and that's where I was before I knew Christ. Um, where am I going? Where is this leading? Why do I feel empty? And so on. Now those things are very real. Those things are very significant. And those things are all consequences of living with that broken relationship that needs to be reconciled. Because living separated from God does put us in a, in a position of desperation and helplessness and meaninglessness. However, it's interesting to note that for the most part, when the Apostle Paul talks about how things used to be for the Christian... He, he often takes a, a different approach to that. He talks about when they were still lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. And Paul goes about things in a much more matter-of-fact way in many senses. We saw in Philippians, if you remember back to our studies in Philippians, when Paul looked back on his life, 
before Christ. He says actually that as Saul of Tarsus, he doesn't look back and say, oh, my life was all meaningless and lacking purpose and all these kinds of things. Actually, his life as Saul of Tarsus was full of meaning and purpose. It was all thoroughly wicked and sinful, but it was full of meaning and purpose as he charged around the Middle East, rounding up Christians, thoroughly convinced that he was doing what was right. When you talk to people who are unbelievers, don't assume that they have no feeling of meaning or purpose in their life. Many of them do, even though they're lost in their sins. To just assume when you begin to talk to someone that they must have no meaning or purpose in life can sometimes take you up a blind alley with them because as far as they're concerned, they've got lots of purpose in their life. It's just thoroughly warped and twisted with sin. There is one thing that all, thing, that, one thing that all sinners do have in common and that's where they're heading. And the things that that all sinners have in common is that they do need to be reconciled to God. And Paul in Ephesians 2, just like he did in Romans 1 to 3, takes us to the real sin problem. As he reminds those Christian believers what they used to be like, he, he just lays it open fair and square, doesn't he? Verse 3, all sinners are by nature children of wrath and that's the approach that Paul takes all of you all of you Ephesian believers once were deserving of God's judgment and condemnation God's wrath upon you the startling truth that the Bible brings us to is that as a child comes out of the womb and everyone is cooing at the new baby. God's anger is upon it. It's quite a sobering thought. But that's the teaching of scripture. God's anger is upon it. It is born a child of wrath. Sounds harsh. But that's the reality and that is the real sin problem. Every child born into this world is immediately heading towards eternal damnation at the hands of a holy God, unless God intervenes. And the good news of the gospel is that God has intervened, and God does intervene, and God can intervene, and God will intervene. That newborn child is alive physically, but it's dead to God. There is no spiritual life within the newborn child. There is no spiritual life in any unsaved man or woman or boy or girl. Dead in trespasses and sins is the Bible's verdict. If you could hook up anyone who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, hook them up to a spiritual life support machine. The doctors would immediately be saying, turn it off. There's no hope for them. 
And as soon as the machine is turned off, all signs of spiritual life will flatline on the screen. You've seen it on the films, haven't you? Beep. That's everyone born in this world spiritually. No spiritual life, just death. No outpulse. Uh, no output and no pulse whatsoever. The condition of sinners, as we saw in Romans 2, so completely ruined that, in fact, we are dead to God. The sinner's position before God without Christ is much more than what is the point of anything in this world. It's much more than where am I going it's all about where am I heading and what comes next. But all of those feelings of emptiness and uh, scrambling for truth that many people go through in this world, they are just symptoms. They're not the actual disease. Jesus didn't come just to ease the symptoms. He came to cure the disease. Cure the disease and the symptoms will clear because the disease has gone. If you have gangrene in your foot, you don't get some savlon or pseudocreme and rub it on. The problem is far too severe for that. If you've got gangrene in your foot, I'll tell you what happens. Your leg gets amputated below the knee or maybe higher still. The problem runs deep. The problem is serious and the action that needs to be taken is aggressive. Christ didn't go to Calvary only because you don't feel so good today and you can feel a bit better tomorrow. The problem is deeper than that. The problem's more serious than that. As a sinner, you're walking the way of this world, is how Paul describes it there in this chapter. You're walking under the power and influence of one who is completely opposed to God, who is the very opposite of God. The prince of the power of the air is the phrase that Paul used. He's talking about Satan, the evil one. He's at work in the world. The outcome is the same in everyone. Disobedience, transgression, law-breaking. The result of that is a completely self-centered, self-obsessed view of the world in which fulfilling your own desires and lusts, those things override all of your thoughts, all of your ambitions, all of your affections, and all of your motives. Please God? Me? Please God? Who's he? Think as I please, do as I please, use who I please, discard who I please. Where will it all end? Wrath, says Paul. God's wrath. Children of wrath like all the others. But God, verse 4. But God. Remember this morning from 2 Corinthians 5, all things are of God. But Paul can write at verse 4, but God. 
And what we discover is that the dead are made alive in Christ. The dead made alive in Christ. Now Paul repeats his opening statement from verse 1 at verse 4 and into verse 5. God, now why is God going to do anything? Because he's rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The dead are made alive as surely as Christ was raised from the garden tomb. Christian men and women have been raised from death to life in Christ and by the same means and the same power by which Christ was brought out of the tomb. Now, if a person is dead, they no longer have any functioning faculties. They don't have any physical faculties. They cannot move, hear, speak, see, smell, touch, nothing dead they have no mental faculties no thought no comprehension no imagination nothing dead they have no emotional faculties joy sorrow grief anger guilt shame nothing because they're dead we were reminded the other week, the scriptures tell us, don't they, the natural man, the sinful man and woman, has no capacity to grasp anything of the things of God, including the claims of the gospel, because these things are spiritually discerned, but men and women in their sins are spiritually dead. They just don't have the capacity to do anything about it. When they hear the gospel... They have no desire to respond because they're dead. No awareness to see that they need to respond because they're dead. No capability to respond because they're dead. All there is, is deadness. How is it that two people can sit in the same gospel service and one remains totally unmoved while the other breaks down before God in repentance and by faith trusts in Christ. How can that happen? How can that be? That two people sitting side by side could have that experience. Because I've read someone's testimony where that's what happened. And they were the one who remained totally unmoved on that occasion. It was years later that they were saved. How can that be? Well, it's because at the end of that meeting, one is still dead in their trespasses and sins. As dead at the end of the meeting as they were when the meeting began. But the other, now for the other, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved him or her, made them alive. 
That's the difference. That's what took place in that meeting that night. God shines the light of his gospel into the heart of the dead and breathes life into their soul. They've been born again. It's the new birth. It's regeneration. Or, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, which we read this morning but which I didn't comment on, they have become, in Christ, a new creation. God has created them all over again and brought them from death to life. God brings alive in them all the faculties that they need in order to see and in order to believe and trust and repent and exercise faith. And God does it in them. Which might cause some to ask the question, well, in that case, how is it that it does only happen to some? Why doesn't it happen to everybody? And of course, that opens us up to the great doctrine of election which I don't have time to go into in great deal this evening. But you see, God, before time began, chose and purposed those who he was going to save, teaches the Bible. Now some, of course, explain away election as God's being able to see through time those men and women and boys and girls who would choose God for themselves and based on that knowledge, God then chooses them. But how can they choose Christ if they are dead in their trespasses and sins? How can they trust Christ if God has not first made them alive? We read these words in... Romans chapter 9. People struggle with the concept that God would choose one and not choose another. But in Romans 9, Paul addresses this issue fairly and squarely, beginning at verse 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, I won't go into what it is specifically Paul's talking about, but he's making it clear that there are going to be some who truly are God's people and there are going to be others who will never be God's people. That's the, that's the main issue that's at stake here. Nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. They're not children just because they've got Abraham's blood in their veins. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, that this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, she had twin boys, Jacob and Esau, the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, 
it was said to her, the younger shall serve, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Does this make God unrighteous? Certainly not. Now, when it comes to the topic of God's electing grace on men and women, we are peering over the abyss, which is the mind and will and purposes of God, and we look down and it drops away into depths which we cannot fathom. But this is what the Bible teaches. You see, it was for God's elect ones for whom Christ died. And it is those elect ones whom God makes alive. But because they are known only to him, and because he has instituted the preaching of the gospel as the means by which they will hear the good news, the gospel is preached to the whole world. And we preach to every man and to every woman and to every boy and to every girl, be reconciled to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way by which you might be saved. Because God comes to those who are his my sheep, said Jesus, know my voice. They will hear. The rest won't, but the sheep will. And they hear as God makes them alive. And the other great doctrine which opens up in these verses is our being united to Christ. Did you notice in those verses, made us alive together with Christ raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And you know how the Apostle Paul continually uses, uses these phrases, in Christ, in him, that we're united to Christ, we're made alive together with Christ. Our union with Christ runs deep through every aspect of our salvation. On the cross he bore your sins, but you also are said to have died there with him on the basis of your being united to him. We've spoken of us sharing in Christ's righteousness, and that's on account of our being united to Christ. That great verse in Galatians chapter 2, Paul speaking, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm united to him. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. There's this union between Christ and his people. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have a read of Romans chapter 6. You see the great theme there. We thought re recently this, this mediatorial office of Christ as our mediator between us and God. And this Christ who now is at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for us. But look at verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 2. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have a place there with him because we are in him. We are united to Christ and we are there with him. It's wonderful truth. 
by, by means of our union with him, and by our union with him, we have access to boldly approach the throne of grace because we're united to Christ. It's all with and in him. You are reckoned by God to have been where Christ has been and to be where Christ now is. That passage in Romans chapter 6, if you read it, Paul talks there about the fact that we have died in Christ. and He he concludes by saying, reckon yourselves therefore to be dead in Christ and alive in Christ. You've died with him and you've been raised with him. And it's all about with and in Christ. This is the great awakening work that God has done in the life of everyone who's a Christian here. Years ago, they used to use a great word for this. They used to call it quickening. God's quickening of people. Talking about them being brought to spiritual life and health and vitality. This great resurrecting, uniting work in the life of dead sinners. All the work of God in the person of his Holy Spirit, just as it was at the resurrection of Jesus himself and this union with Christ is fixed and it's unshakable we've just been singing he will hold me fast and he will that union is there to say it's stay it's like spiritual superglue and you're not budging nothing's going to shake you let not anything separate what God has joined together we say at wedding ceremonies but of course the 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 wedding ceremonies that we celebrate are given as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And nothing's ever going to separate Christ from his church. And if you're one of his people, nothing's ever going to separate you from him. Ever. Nothing. Not even the sins you still struggle with. They won't separate you from him. And verse 7 assures you that because God has spiritually welded you to Christ, you are assured of a place with him in that eternal glory that he's prepared for you. You'll be there because God has raised you to life and united you to Christ and all is assured in him. Every Christian is a man, woman, boy or girl who can look at verses 2 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 and say, not proudly, but with a broken and contrite heart, yes, that was me. That was me. But they can also read verse 1. And you can also read verses 4 to 8. And you can say, yes, that's me. (laughs) Praise God, that's me made alive who once was dead is yours one of those voices just to conclude Paul often makes sure just in case you didn't get it the first time do you notice as you read through that passage he says twice that you've been brought from death to life. Just in case you missed it in verse 1, he repeats it later. In those few short verses, God's love is mentioned twice. We're reminded of God's mercy and kindness. And three times we're told this is all down to God's mercy. That it's all of God. That was one of the headings this morning. 
All through Paul's writings, he won't allow us to forget it. It's all of God. It's God's grace, verse 8. God's undeserved favour. You couldn't do anything to please God. You were dead. The dead can't do anything to please anyone. Certainly not God. Undeserved favour. Undeserved love. Undeserved mercy. And he made you alive. Through faith. And according, according to this passage, even your faith is a gift of God. It's all of him. No one can make any claim for having made the slightest contribution to knowing Christ and being a Christian. God has done it all. When you greet someone after they've just been baptised, do try and avoid the trap of walking up to them and saying, well done. You're attributing to them something which God has done. Just thank and praise God with them. Don't congratulate them. They didn't do anything. They were dead. God did it. He made them alive. You are, says Paul, the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in this room that made itself. It's all the handiwork of someone. If you're a Christian, you're the handiwork of God himself. He's made you who and what you are in Christ Jesus. Telling people about the gospel of Christ involves an earnest exhortation as we thought about this morning it involves saying to people be reconciled to God but of course if you think about what we just studied this evening we're proclaiming Christ to those who are children of wrath that's clear we're proclaiming Christ to those who are dead in trespasses and sins we're preaching to people knowing that they cannot hear us. We're exhorting people to do something and we know they cannot do it. How daft is that? Well, of course, that's why Paul says the gospel is so often a complete stumbling block to people. They just don't understand what we're doing. But if you understand what Paul is teaching us here, every time we preach the gospel, we know we're preaching to people who can't hear a word we're saying. And we're asking people to do something that we know they cannot do. So why do we do it? Well, we have this very certain hope, you see. As we proclaim the gospel, we have this certain hope that God, who is rich in mercy... And out of his great love, even while they are dead in sins, will make them alive. That's why we do it. That's why we preach to people who can't hear. That's why we ask people to do something that they have no capacity to do. Because as the gospel is proclaimed, like those two people who were sat in a gospel meeting... As the gospel is being proclaimed, 
God in his great love and mercy makes alive those who are his as he calls and draws them to himself. And they are savingly and eternally united to his son, our precious saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there they will stay forever. Are you there?